Hi, everyone. You're listening to Backstory. Let's hear it on WTBR-FM Pittsville with Roberta McCulloch-Dews of the mayor's office in the city of Pittsville. Thanks for tuning in. Today we have with us Xavier, a premier, Xavier Jones, I should say, a premier executive chef, um, and he's also a personal chef, and Cindy Brown, Associate Commissioner of Regulatory and Veterans Affairs at Massachusetts Department of Education, Higher Education. Um, But right now we're going to kick things off with Xavier Jones. Welcome, Xavier. Let's get started. Good morning. So I always like to begin every interview with a brief background. So you're originally from Philadelphia, right? Yes. And you've lived in the Berkshires for about 19 years, right? Yes. Okay. So did you have any family in the area before you moved to the county? No, not at all. So I'm curious, why did you choose Berkshire County? Um, I had to do an internship when I was in college. Okay. And so you had to pick about seven different places. Mm-hmm. I interviewed with seven. Um, I got hired by four. Okay. Um, a couple places I did not want to go to, but I needed to just pick it to mm-hmm. reach my seven. Mm-hmm. One was uh, Tucson, Arizona, the Tucson Hotel. Mm-hmm. Another one was <clears throat> uh, Sawgrass, Florida, mm-hmm. right in Jacksonville. Okay. I also picked the Red Lion Inn. In Stockbridge, Mass. Okay. Um, I had never been to Massachusetts. Uh-huh. So, you know, being a poor city kid out of college, mm-hmm. didn't have any money to travel too far. Uh, Massachusetts was the closest place, hmm. and they offered me room and board. So All I came right. there. How did you like it coming from Philly? Um, I didn't. Okay. It was a small, quaint, quiet, nothing going on. You know, I was so used to going to sleep to fights and dogs and cats and alleyways <laughs> and sirens and gunshots that I came up here and I was I was like, what is that noise? And people was like, yo, that's crickets. It's called nothing. <laughs> it's called silence. But, you know, it's something, there's something to be said for, you know, just adapting to that. So I grew up in the Bronx and, you know, I've lived outside of New York City for more than 20 years now. But, you know, again, when I go back and if I'm visiting with, you know, you know, just friends or whoever, it's a it's a difference. I mean, you you definitely go to sleep with a hum of the cars racing, um, you know, sirens. It's a different it's a different flow. And I have to say, I'm, I'm used to not hearing it, you know, um, but I can adjust. But I could understand how it could be a big change. So at what point did you get comfortable in the area? Um, when I came back, okay. I, um, every winter I would go home because uh, it slows down. Mm-hmm. So I would go home. And believe it or not, when I got home, I was like, man, I missed the quietness. Ah. And I would come back, um, you know, late winter, early spring. And I was like, oh, this is nice, mm-hmm. you know. And then I, you know, after doing it for so long, you know, you start to get used to it. Right. Um, and you start to adapt, mm-hmm. you know, to your environment. Right. Okay. All right. So that was, and you predominantly stayed in South County. For the first uh, two years up here, yes. Okay. All right. So I just want to just, you know, um, share with our listeners that, you know, Xavier, since he's been here, he's been you know, built a huge following through, you know, throughout the Berkshires and just some of the places that you've worked. You've worked at the Red Lion 
And um, you there you garnered experience in New England and French cooking. Um, you've also worked as a sous chef, a chef de cuisine, or executive chef at the following establishments. So let's count it down. Jay Spice um, at its former downtown Pittsville location, the Press Box, and Patty's Bistro. And outside of the region, you've worked for Mass's Ocean Bar in Chicopee, Viva Fresh Pasta in Northampton, and the Thirsty Owl in Saratoga Springs. So you've worked a variety of places. You have a ton of experience. And I just have to say something. You trained at the Lake Cordon Bleu Institute of Culinary Arts in Pittsburgh. And I got to say, there's something about saying that name that just sounds impressive. <laughs> Tell me more about your training. Um, I mean, school was great. It's, it's very demanding. Um, you know, you're at school at 5 a.m. in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um and the training training was really good. Um, it's a lot of cooking, but o- on top of the cooking, they teach you, you know, how to um, become in the hotel world, mm-hmm. um, how to be better in the industry, not okay. just to be a cook, because cooking is is the easy part. Hmm. You want, you, just because you know how to cook, it doesn't mean you're a chef. Mm. You know, there's a difference. A lot. Of, Let's speak about that. Let's. What's the difference? So the difference is, I mean, anybody can just go in and cook, but mm-hmm. the, but the the chef he's now building the menus. He's costing out. Mm. He has to understand, you know, his P and Ls. He has to understand not just how to cook the mm-hmm. food, but what is the difference between all these meats? Right, right. You know, um, he is leadership. Mm. You know, sometimes as the chef, you are a, a babysitter, a, a counselor. <laughs> okay. You know, um, you're playing mom and dad. You okay. know, you, you, you play so many different roles, but you are the leader, not just. And most chefs don't yeah. cook once you get to a certain point. A lot of them are not cooking anymore. Is it because you're in the role of, I think to your point, you're encouraging the up and coming chefs? And it, why, why is that? Well, because you are mostly overseeing, oh. making sure operations are going the way it's supposed to. Mm. You know, as a chef, if you're tied down to one station, mm-hmm. how can you know that your saute guy, your grill guy, your garbage right. is putting out the right food? So you're usually the expediting, mm. you know, um, you're making sure all the paperwork is done. It's interesting because you probably start out in the business because of your love of cooking. And then there is this transition of sorts into the administration. So do you think that that is something that can be hard for some chefs to adapt to because you're not necessarily doing the hands on anymore? It is hard for some, mm-hmm. but you're, you're still going in and butchering your own meat. <laughs> okay. You're still jumping in on the line and helping your guys turn out on a busy night when mm-hmm. things are getting rough. Okay. Um, you're not fully away from the kitchen, but you know, you know, after a while, you're saying, okay, everything that I created, yes, all my work, and you're watching all these plates come into the window yes. before they hit the table, and you're going, I created this. Mm. There's, there's still some joy there. Yeah. Even though you started out just to cook. Yeah. You are now like, okay, now I've trained these guys, all my training, and you're looking at it all come together. Well, it's funny that you say that because I think any kind of creative person, 
there's there's a, a formula of sorts and a rhythm. And, you know, I would think of also like a chef as a creative. And so when you are in the process of putting together your creations, do you find that you adapt to your own personal rhythm? Do you have something that, you know, your own creative formula that you adapt to? You have to because mm-hmm. you, it's it's your own personal art. Mm. You have to tell a story on a plate. Mm. You know, um, when you're creating any artist that creates something, they want people to look at it and go, "Wow!" Okay. So when I'm creating a plate, yeah, from scratch, yeah, I have to picture it in my head, yeah, before I put it down on a plate. And then what are people? What, what's the story behind this? What are people going to say? Are right, you know? So you work backwards, then. So you actually have what it looks like in your head, and then you get the ingredients, and then you put it together. Yes. Okay. Wow. Is that like the standard process, or is that your process? I don't know. I, I've I've only been trained by one chef. Okay. We've never sat down and had this conversation. Okay. So I, you know, I, I don't know if anybody else is doing it that way. But whenever I'm going to serve a dish, mm-hmm. I'm. You know, like I have a party this weekend and I have a five course meal. Yeah. And I am picturing what each course is going to look like in my head and how I want that plate to look at. Look yeah. Like is that's how I go and buy my ingredients. So do your your clients, do they say, OK, this is what we want? Or do they give you free range to say, OK, I want a five course meal. You put it together. We trust you. How is that process? If there's any allergies mm-hmm. or if it's things that they don't like. Yeah. You know, usually you're not cooking for just a couple. Yeah. You know, um, usually for me, I'm cooking for four, six, eight people. So we're usually in an email tread. Yeah. Of everybody saying, okay, I really like this or I don't like that. Mm. I can't eat crustaceans. Mm-hmm. Make sure there's no nuts, no seeds, um, or there's one gluten. So once I get all that out the way, right. then I create the menu. They give me the the free reins to go and create that. Wow. So, I mean, let's just talk a little bit about just the, the realm of being a personal chef, because obviously this is a segment where it's really popular for you. Is that something that you thought you would, because we're going to talk a little bit about your restaurant, you know, work and and all of that. But it seems like your professional chef, um, you know, initiatives, they're really popular right now. Yes. Is that something that you said I I, I want to dovetail into or you realize this was a market that you could tap into? So to give you a little history, I was scared to do it. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to do it when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I watch, you know, like sports players and, um, you know, actors and stuff like that. They always have personal chefs. Yeah. And I said, man, I wish I can do that. Mm-hmm. But I was scared. Okay. I was scared to take that that jump, okay. that leap. And so I was always selling myself short. Mm-hmm. So throughout time and more training, there was something that came up um, in the beginning of 2020 and the end of 2019 called COVID that really shook the world up. Mm-hmm. And when it shook the world up, it allowed people to either face their fears or run. For me, it was I was able to face it. I was just walking away from a restaurant that I closed down, and I needed to reinvent myself. Mm-hmm. COVID allowed that to happen. COVID allowed me to take that leap, that jump, mm-hmm. and say, you have to do something different. Right. You come too far to walk away. Right. So I didn't want to be in the restaurant world at the time. Mm-hmm. 
but I still wanted to utilize the skills and the gifts that God blessed me with. Right. But I needed to do it on a different stage, a mm-hmm. different platform. Well, I think you're you're right about that. I think COVID definitely um, was that push for so many people to say now is the time because. You know, when you're in a life and death situation where you see people, you know, you know, unfortunately losing their lives, you realize just how precious your life is. And you do that self-analysis and say, you know, am I making the most of the opportunities that I have? Am I reaching, you know, maximizing my potential? And so I definitely think that, you know, those conversations, I think you were not alone in having them and you took that leap. And it's proven to be very successful for you. Where where do your clients are 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 they based? Are they based in the Berkshires? Are they based outside of the Berkshires? I don't, most of my clients are outside of the Berkshires okay. in the Capital District. Okay. Um, over in near Albany, and a good friend that used to come, and when I was in Saratoga Springs, New mm-hmm. York, and he would come and he would just say, "Chef, cook me whatever. I don't want what's on the menu." Right. So when I started advertising years later. Um, my cooking classes, he jumped on it. Mm-hmm. When he jumped on it, he um, had a party. We did uh, like seven of his friends. Mm-hmm. And from that, it just led to another one, to another one, to another one. And it just it just kept going. So word so of mouth. A lot of word of mouth. Okay. So in the capital region was was um, was awesome. Okay. And then, you know, here in the Berkshires, just started picking up some traction. Okay. Um, and so I'm, I'm doing, doing, doing pretty well, you know? Oh, I'm so happy for you. Thank that's, you. that's excellent. I mean, you know, I know that you mentioned the restaurant and, you know, I just wanted to just, you know, pivot a little bit to that because, you know, after your experience in the restaurants that we talked about initially, you opened your first restaurant, Big Daddy's, um, Philly Steakhouse in 2017, right? Mm-hmm. And that was in Adams, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then you also went on to open um, another location in Pittsfield. And so obviously you brought your love of Philly cheesesteaks to the region. Um, but when you transitioned from the restaurants, you know, um, what were some of the takeaways that you took when you closed that chapter in your life? Um, follow my dream. Okay. Opening up a, a cheesesteak restaurant wasn't my dream. Okay. Um, 2006, I came up here to originally help a chef named Doug Love mm-hmm. open up a restaurant called Spice. It was there before J Spice. And my father brought me back up here. He was my biggest advocate. And he, as we're driving down, he was like, man, I just want a sandwich. You know, and there wasn't a lot of restaurants open back in 2006 here in Pittsville. And he says, where can we get it? I said, I don't know. (laughs) He looked at me. He said, when you make it, Mm -hmm. open up a cheesesteak and hoagie shop. Show the virtues what a real sandwich is all about. Mm -hmm. So my father being bent over backwards, drive across the world for me. Right. When the opportunity came, I I gave him right. his joy. Right. He always wanted that. Okay. And we always talked about it as a, me growing up as a kid. Right. So, you know, I was like, you know, I'm gonna do this, and I did it for my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it turned it turned out beautiful. We had a almost a three year run and. You know, um, a lot of ups and downs, but at right. the end of the day, it was it was great. And, you know, 
And then in 2019, when he died, mm. it's when it was like, okay, you know, I didn't have the strength to finish his dream. Right. You know. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because for the love of your dad, you started the restaurant. But upon his passing, you realized that 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 was his vision. And it's almost like through that experience, you realized that you almost needed to fulfill your own. Mm. But I think that, um, you know, from what I heard, you know, your cheesesteaks were legendary. Tell me a little bit about just the um, what you what you put into them, because I've never had a Philly cheesesteak. You know, I, I don't eat meat, so I probably will never have a Philly cheesesteak unless it's vegan. But um, there's something to be said about the Philly cheesesteak. What makes it so popular and what was your signature um, flavor that you added to it? <laughs> Love and passion. Okay. All right. To be honest with you, a lot of people want to make a Philly cheesesteak and they use all different types of bread. What made the Philadelphia cheesesteak famous uh-huh. was a company named Amoroso. Okay. It was their rolls. So the Italian bakery at 55th and Thomas Avenue, right in the neighborhood that I grew up. And as a kid, I used to ride my bike up to the factory and get the rolls off the conveyor belt, fresh, hot. Wait, how were you able to just roll up and just get bread from the conveyor belt? The the factory was right there. (laughs) I would ride my bike up to the back of the factory and the guys would just give you give, give me bread. Um, neighborhood kid, right? A neighborhood kid, right. you know. And, and you know, I didn't just sneak into the factory, you know. <laughs> but they knew why I was coming there, you right. know. Um, and those those were the roles. Okay. And there was companies that came up after that that started to duplicate what that company was doing. Mm. But those are the roles that made the cheesesteak. It wasn't always just the meat. Okay. It wasn't a special ingredient. I had salt and pepper, that's it. Really? Salt and pepper. It's the rolls. I imported my rolls from Philadelphia. Okay, so it was the bread. Yes, that's what is. that's what it's all about. People tell you the bread makes the sandwich. Uh-huh. And when it comes down to the Philly cheesesteak, that is the number one difference. Now, you you got to have the meat right, mm-hmm. shaved ribeye, you know, you got to have the meat right. right, but you have to have the roll. So it's a whole package. It is. It is. It is the whole package, but it starts out with the bread. I think that's actually like a metaphor that could actually be adapted to other things in life, right? Just having a stable foundation. If your foundation is strong and you build upon it, you're going to have something that can stand the test of time. You know, thinking about that cheesesteak, you know, if your bread is not good, then the whole sandwich, just throw it all away. Just throw it all away. Mm-hmm. Well, um, maybe you can tell me where I can get a good vegan cheesesteak. I'm looking at your face and you're like, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that, no, I can't. You can make a good veggie cheesesteak at home. You don't okay. want a vegan one. You just make a veggie. I used to serve a veggie cheesesteak. Okay. It was very popular. Okay. So we'll, we'll talk after the interview and you can tell me what I need to do to make a good veggie cheesesteak and um and then i'll take pictures of it and i'll send it to you well you know i'm for hire well that is true i'll just hire you to make my veggie cheesesteaks there you go so the the crisis has been solved i'll, I'll get my veggie cheesesteak i want to ask you a little bit about 
just your personal philosophy because on your website you state your you bring your love of food and people to all that you do and you make it very clear that you're more than an executive chef you're more than a personal chef you also cite teacher and mentor and you know for someone with your talent you could have stopped at the food part you could have said I'm good I'm successful but why is it important for you to add those two roles to your professional website and then to speak a little bit about your community affiliations? Growing up, life wasn't easy. So I grew up in a drug-infested, alcohol-infested, bouncing between mom and dad. Tom's mom wasn't around, and even when dad was there, he wasn't around because he was constantly working. So life wasn't easy growing up. I was homeless at one point. Um, fire hydrant on my corner was my source of water at one point. So I, as I grew up, I always, always said, you know, I'm going to do the best that I can and work as hard as I can never to have to go back to that. Mm -hmm. And once I had a child, I vowed to myself to never allow my son to experience what I went through. When I became a writer, because I in, in college, I started writing, and then I became a published writer, and I won some awards and traveled the country with writing. I've noticed that it was the writing that allowed me to take it to the next level, allowed me to see the light through the darkness. It was the writing that allowed me to breathe from the suffocating circumstances of life that I was going through. Mm -hmm. In 2000. Six, I was able to go down to West Springfield YMCA and teach young kids who how to write, who suffered from a loss of a loved one through gun violence. And I realized my writing helped them open up and helped them breathe. Mm -hmm. And they was able to now talk about what they were holding in. Right. So I utilized that tool in later years to help out. In 2017, I was invited to come to uh, Hoosick Valley High School and help out with a writing class. Mm -hmm. And those kids, you know, graduated with better grades after working with me for two semesters. Right. And it was it was it was this awesome feeling. I never wanted to get into teaching. I, I always wanted to be a mentor because I wanted to be what I didn't have. Mm. So I wanted to what I what I seek for as a as a child that guidance that you know growing up in the in the, in the hood a, a young black man that would that would tell that would show me the way yeah instead I had guys on the street corners and right. stuff like that but I wanted to see a positive image so because I didn't have that positive image outside of my father right. who later years became my biggest advocate my biggest pusher my biggest supporter mm -hmm. you know but when I wanted to become what these young men didn't have, and it wasn't just for the black man, it was for the white, the Asian, the Spanish, right. whoever, I wanted to just be that. Anyone and who needed it. Who, who, anyone that needed it. Because, mm -hmm. you know, the color of your skin doesn't stop you from the circumstances of life. Right. You know, right. It, doesn't, it doesn't stop you. You know, you, so we all go through it. So here in the Berkshires, the opportunity came. Jake McCandless called me, asked me if I would come into Taconic High School. Right. That led me into Reed Middle School, 
Um, and I was like, wow, you know, mm-hmm. you know, doors opened up. When God gives you a gift, you can't sit on it. And it was a gift that I didn't know I had until I decided to activate it and tap into it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, what use is it to me if I don't use it? Right. How do you stay, how do you balance your um your professional endeavors right now with the community work that means so much to you? Um, <laughs> I wish I knew that answer mm-hmm. because it's, it's crazy. You know, um, I, I just, I, I just keep going. I, I, I really, I really don't know. I don't sit down much. Okay. I really don't sit down. And, you know, you know, before COVID I was working with, you know, affiliate with the boys and girls club helping out, um, you know, at one point was with Habitat for Humanity. Right. You know, just trying my best to, to, to help out wherever I could. I used to, you know, have a mentorship called XL mm-hmm. where, you know, I was working with not just kids but young adults also. Um, and, you know, that kind of the, – the mentorship kind of faded away. Yeah. But what I was doing didn't. I could see – I continued to – to keep going. Right. Um, and then I use social media, social media to to really talk to people every day. Okay. This, I put a message out there okay. so that somebody okay. can read it. You know, what are your messages about? My message is about overcoming your fears. Okay. My message is, is, is about bettering yourself. Mm-hmm. Everything is always positive okay. and, 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 and how to, how to be successful. Your, your your success is not defined by the level you at or how much money, but your success is defined by doing what you love. That's right. I think if people would just understand that because you're, it, it really has nothing to do with the bank account because you can have so much money and be miserable. Um, so many people get up you know, every day and go to a job that they hate Um, and, you know, and they might make a ton of money, but they're not happy. And so I think, you know, back to the pandemic, I mean, it has really allowed people to um, really just, you know, um, think about their priorities, think about what matters to them and realizing that with the time we have, right, make, you know, the use of it, make good use of it um, and live a meaningful life, um, you know. And so I think that, you know, I'm a big proponent of mentorship. I I believe in it um, because I had mentors growing up outside of my family. um, And I do believe in that village concept um, because it's so important. And I think now more so with, you know, kids and so many influences and distractions. I think it's so important for youth just to have so many people in their lives who can just, you know, encourage them and uplift them. Um, but before our time runs out, I, I want to ask you, who or what inspires you? Hmm. Who or what inspires me? Um, my father. I mean, even though he's gone, he's still... I watched my father work like crazy mm-hmm. to make sure that I had a better life. And... He drove all over this country. He was a big time driver, mm-hmm. and I, I took that in and I said, you know, I'm gonna do the same thing, but I have to do it different. You know, my son travels with me to work a lot. Is you he know, like your assistant? Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, so when I do a lot of my private cooking, my son is right there. 
you know, he goes to my classes right there with me because, you know, I wanted to, I, I wanted him, I want him to see what I see. Right. I wanted him to see what I witnessed. And that was, you know, you know, society always say that black men don't work. Mm-hmm. I was raised by a black man who worked. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't there a lot. Because he was working. Because he was working. Right. So for me, I don't want, I didn't want that part of it. Mm-hmm. So my so he, that's where my inspiration okay. comes from. And what, if you had to choose one word to describe yourself, what would that one word be? Water. Water. Why? I learned a long time ago to live by the quote that Bruce Lee once said, that everybody should be like water. Water can form to anything. It adapts to anything. It can take over anything. It can penetrate. So I learned to live my life to be able to adapt to every circumstance, to be able to fit in where need be. So when I say, when you ask me that question, what one thing, name something about me, what, you know, that's, it's, it's to be like water. Wow. It's to be, even when water dissipates and it, it dissipates into the air yeah. so that we breathe it in and we recycle it, you mm-hmm. know? So it's just very important for me to always take that analogy Wow. And put it into my life. That is so profound. Thank you, Xavier. I thoroughly enjoyed today's interview. I wish we had more time, but that's always the case on Backstory. We have some tremendous guests who have great stories. And I just want to thank Xavier for joining us today. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with our next guest, Cindy Brown, who is the Associate Commissioner of Regulatory and Veterans Affairs at the Massachusetts Department of Higher Education. Thanks, everyone. The Berkshire's only rock station, 89.7 WTBR-FM, Pittsfield, Massachusetts. 89.7 WTBR-FM is proud to announce our third annual one-day on-air fundraiser. The event will take place on Thursday, November 18th from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Don't miss our guests, including local dignitaries and your friends and neighbors from the community. There'll be plenty of incentives you can win, including restaurant gift certificates, tickets to local cultural attractions, and much more. And for each donation of $25 or more, you'll be in the running to win a Thanksgiving feast from KJ Nosh Catering on Tyler Street in Pittsfield. You can make your donation right now at WTBRFM.com. Don't miss the third annual One Day On Air fundraiser, live from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Thursday, November 18th, only on 89.7 WTBRFM and all day live on the WTBR Facebook page. Thank you for supporting Pittsfield Community Radio. Hey, this is Chief Wynn with the Pittsfield Police Department and Lieutenant Gary Traversa. Hey, Gary. Hey, Chief. We just want to remind all of our listeners and viewers to tune in every Friday for On Patrol with the PPD here on WTBR 89.7 FM, Pittsfield Community Radio, and also on Pittsfield Community Television. Right, Gary? Don't miss Friday mornings, 9 a.m. on WTBR FM. All the happenings at the Pittsfield Police Department. On Patrol with the PPD here on WTBR 89.7 FM. We are the music makers. 
And we are the dreamers of dreams. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Backstory. Let's hear it on 89.7 WTBRFM with Roberta McCulloch Dews of the Mayor's Office in the City of Pittsville. Thanks for tuning in. So, another round of thanks to Xavier Jones, executive and personal chef, teacher, and mentor. He was awesome. And now we have Cindy Brown. So, Cindy, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Roberta. All right. So, you are the Associate Commissioner of Regulatory and Veterans Affairs at the Massachusetts Department of Higher Education. And you're also the president of the Berkshire County Historical Society at Arrowhead. So, we're going to talk about both roles shortly. But first, let's share a little bit about your background. So, you've lived in Pittsfield for 12 years? That's right. Okay, but you grew up in Granby. Okay. Which is in the Connecticut River Valley in the Five College area. Okay. Sort of between South Hadley and Amherst. Okay. Yeah. All right. So if folks know like the Springfield area, is it outside of Springfield? Yeah, a little north. little north. Okay. So do you still have roots there and do you get back? Sure. I do get back. I have uh, family throughout the valley. Uh, I see an aunt and uncle in Franklin County quite a bit. Okay. And then I do have relatives right in the in the area, too, that I keep up with on social media. And, mm-hmm. and I think now that um, COVID's pretty much passed, we'll try to be making a few more trips to right. see people in person. Well, let's hope it's passed for good. Let's hope so. I know. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. So being that you've been in Pittsfield for 12 years, you've moved here for work, what do you love best about the city? I think the variety of things there is to do here. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have a really urban experience, um, a cultural experience, but there's a lot of natural beauty uh, ways to get outdoors, lots of outdoors activities, lots of unique kinds of things here. Okay. And you can do them all on the same same day. Right. That is true. Yeah. That is true. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your current position because it sounds so interesting and it sounds very important. So please <laughs> tell me more about this role. <laughs> yeah. So um, I oversee or collaborate on a lot of uh, program review and policy work. So, for example, applications for new institutions of higher education Mm -hmm. come through uh, my function. And um, I'm also involved in monitoring contingency planning for institutions that may be struggling a little bit in the Commonwealth. Um, I I oversee the Veterans Affairs Office. Um, The Department of Higher Ed administers the federal contract for Mm -hmm. veterans' educational benefits, typically called the GI Bill Mm -hmm. benefits. Um, And so this includes oversight of all kinds of educational opportunities. So in addition to college um, apprenticeship programs, Mm -hmm. flight schools. Wow. um, Yeah. uh, About 250 programs that are eligible to administer um, veterans' benefits throughout the Commonwealth. That's a pretty vast territory. It is. And um, there are about 300,000 veterans in Massachusetts. It's about 6% of the population of Massachusetts. Most people don't realize that. Yeah. And about 11,000 of those veterans accessed some kind of educational benefit last year. So it's a really important role. Wow. Um, Overseeing compliance, making sure that um, everyone's following Mm-hmm. regulations, that there's no fraud or waste. Right. Um, and I've learned a lot. I mean, I knew something about it, but mm-hmm. I've learned an awful lot 
um, overseeing well, this function? Well, I mean, it's important work. I mean, I think two components, one higher education, but also our veterans, too. That's right. You know, so, you know, I think it's a it's a very um, significant intersection. But you're well acquainted with the field of higher education because you your background pretty much um, is centered in higher education. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, you have a Ph.D. in the history of American civilization and your past institutions. You've worked at MCLA and you have a lot you had a long-standing career at Leslie, you know, University. So, I mean, you basically, this is sort of your territory. So coming into the role at the state was like, I'm sure you had to learn the lay of the land, but it wasn't like totally unfamiliar. No, and I was able to bring uh, skills and experiences from all of my past roles Mm -hmm. to bear, Um, especially now in the time of of COVID when our work has been remote for so long. Um, one of the things I did at Leslie University was oversee a lot of national programs mm-hmm. that were taking place on the ground in other states throughout the United States and okay. did a lot of that work on the phone mm-hmm. and uh, over email. This is pre-Zoom, right. pre-video conferencing. <laughs> of course. Um, and so I, I learned a lot about how to do that effectively. Mm-hmm. And those are skills that came right back up uh, during this unexpected time of, of remote there's work. there's something to be said about sort of amassing the arsenal the arsenal I should say of skills because you never know when you're going to need them. That's right, and and you know you can repurpose yourself many times. Right. Um, but fundamentally, higher education is about forming and maintaining communities. Right. Um, and communities that have strong and positive values, and that's what I hope I've been able to do during my career. So you you work in you know an administrative leadership position now, but you got your start in in the classroom, right, yeah. as an assistant professor. Yeah. So do you ever miss teaching? Well, you know, I've managed to keep my hand in. Okay. So right now, for example, I know we're going to talk a little bit about um, uh, the Berkshire County Historical Society in Arrowhead, but I'm a I volunteer as a docent there in addition to my board responsibilities. So I give tours. Do you? I do. <laughs> and do you say I'm the president of the... Or do I you usually da- do. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, because I say I, I, if I can answer other questions okay. about the Berkshires, I'd like to do that because okay. I try to put Arrowhead and Herman Melville and everything into context, okay. a wider context. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, well, we're definitely going to get into the Berkshire um, Historical Society um, angle because there's tons of interesting um, tidbits that um, you, you, you're going to want to learn about. But I just want to, you know, just quickly ask a couple of questions just about your role in academia. And one of the things is you've authored two books and you've contributed to chapters in two others. And regarding one of the latter books, Women Administrators in Higher Education, Historical and Contemporary Perspectives, you contributed a chapter on the patterns of leadership, the impact of female authority in four women's colleges from 1880 to 1910. And what would you say, I'm curious to know, as you are now an administrator, right? Um, You've been an administrator in higher ed and you've now pivoted into, you know, state government. But what would you say were some of the biggest impacts at the time and have they stood the test of time today? Yeah, so I would say that women um, had and to some extent still have a lot of challenges when they lead in in education, in higher education, um, and in any area really in our culture. And women also have had to seek out opportunities to develop their skills and leadership, particularly in areas like finance, where Mm -hmm. they're underrepresented, which is still the case, as we know. Um, So it was a lot harder to do this in the 19th century, early 20th century, the period that my my work, uh, my dissertation and my chapter were covered. But it's taken a really long time to change. 
Um, and I would say the fact we've had to wait until 2021, mm. this very day, mm-hmm. to elect a woman as mayor of Boston and a woman as mayor of North Adams right. shows us what kind of work we still have to do when it comes to women in leadership. Right. Absolutely. I think that definitely it's important to, you know, to acknowledge the strides, but to also acknowledge that there's a lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. And I am um, always a firm believer that representation matters and the whole windows and mirrors concept, right? When you, you know, it's important to see it. And when people see it, the more often they see it, then um, they can, they can, understand one the power and the significance and buy into it um so that's that's tremendous um i want to switch gears because i think you're really excited to talk about the Berkshire historical society i am um so let's switch gears a little bit and i want to talk a little bit about your role as board president you've been involved with the group since september and you've been board president as of may 2019 considering the nature of your doctorate um, this seems to be a perfect fit. So for those who may not have any awareness um, about Arrowhead or even the Berkshire Historical Society, can you give us the docent primer? Sure. <laughs> so uh, the Berkshire County Historical Society has been around since 1962. So our 60th anniversary is next year. And since 1975, when the society uh, purchased Arrowhead, it's had a dual mission of both interpreting and preserving the history and culture of Berkshire County and also of interpreting uh, Arrowhead, which is where Herman Melville lived with his family from 1850 till 1863, where he rewrote and published Moby Dick and then went on to have his most productive years as an author. So most of the short fiction that we know him for, Bartleby the Scrivener, Benito Serino, the Encantadas, Piazza Tales, he wrote at Arrowhead. Really? Yeah. And many of those short stories, particularly in the Piazza Tales, um, have Berkshire themes or about people or things that he experienced in the Berkshires. And I think most people don't realize that. Um, Interesting. Do yeah. you think that people, where do you think they think he wrote it? Uh, New York. He was born in New York. Oh. Um, his mother's family is from New York, Dutch oh. family in New York. And New York City claims him very proudly. Uh-huh. Also upstate. He has connections, significant connections to um, Troy and okay. Albany. Okay. So um, I think most people think of him as a, as a New Yorker. Really? Yeah. So how then to raise the profile of you know, Arrowhead and Melville, if, if that's the case, if Arrowhead is almost almost in the shadows, what do you guys have in mind to, to raise his, uh, that, that profile? Well, um, we, we have done a lot more programming mm-hmm. and we're going to do more now that, you know, as we discussed, COVID is, we hope, passed us. But it's to bring interpretations, it's to bring artists and other creatives mm-hmm. to Arrowhead and sort of reactivate that, uh, that piece of Arrowhead's history so we collaborate with the Mastheads Project here in Pittsfield, mm-hmm. and the uh, Masthead Studios are more or less permanently on the property now. I was going to say, if anyone has yeah. ever driven by and you look into the distance in the fields, they're, they almost look like little cabins. Yeah, like little black studio yeah. cabins. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So think of Thoreau, you know, in the woods around Walden. Right. Um, and people can rent those. And that's where the, the fellows, the, the Mastheads fellows in the summer, mm-hmm. do their work. Um, this past summer it was two weeks, but in the past it's been a month. 
Well, then, I can't think of a better COVID-19 safety protocol friendly place. You know what? It was. Than the cabin. It was. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so so we have that connection. Um, we hosted a, a new play called Rewritten this mm-hmm. past summer that was performed for the first time at Arrowhead, which is about the relationship between um, Nathaniel Hawthorne and Herman Melville. Mm-hmm. Very important relationship that got its start and played out to large degree here in the Berkshires. Um, and it was a, a, a very successful play. We hope to bring it back. Okay. It's now being performed around the state. They've wow. got a couple of other dates booked in other parts of the state. So it's really, you know, I, I think that part of the profile. And then I think most people um, don't know that we have 45 acres associated with the house and, and barns. Um, and part of it's all part of the original farm that he bought, mm-hmm. Herman Melville bought. We have some walking trails. You know, we're we're trying to do some uh, more interpretive things with the property. We're going to put in a demonstration. Oh wow! Apple orchard. Wow. Focused on types for cider, and we're going to have a partnership with one of the cideries in the county to provide apples. Because oh. cider's big. Cider is huge. Cider's big. Now, maybe not as big as marijuana, but it's pretty big. Right. <laughs> Right. It's pretty big. Right. That That is true. Listen, people are very committed to their apple orchards, especially in the fall. They are. They're just, they yeah, are. Yeah. So we're, we're excited about that. The trees have been ordered. They're going in in the spring. Wow. We're also, we also got a U.S. Um, DOA grant, Department of Agriculture grant, to put in a pollinator habitat on part of the fields that we have. So will this mean then that like once the trees are in bloom, that people can go there and pick apples and get cider? Or? We're, we're probably going to try to keep the apples on the trees for the cider project oh, to come and get. Cider. But posing, you know, we might, and we might allow people to do sort of windfalls, oh. but we have to sort of see how, how it hmm. goes. It's going to take a few years. Well, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that we've all, you know, just in, you know, thinking about the pandemic and just thinking about how people yeah. have mastered the pivot, collaborations are so important. Huge. And what we've seen is that community organizations have partnered with one another to um, to stay afloat, to grow, to, um, to maintain their relevancy, um, but also to create the experience. One of the things when I went on to the website... I didn't realize people could have parties there. They could yes. have weddings. Yeah, you can they, do rentals. We do rentals who now. Knew? I know. We just started. Oh, okay. We just started that. <laughs> yeah. And and again, um, you know, people are really, in, this is a, a newer thing okay. to, to want to be in a barn or be in a more naturalistic mm-hmm. setting for some of these events. And we have a, we have a really good uh, way to do that. We were actually, we hosted the Berkshire Museum's annual gala okay. this past summer because they were still under construction. Right. And so we had um, about 250, 300 people okay. on site. We tented it. They tented it. Yeah. Um, worked out really well, I think. They were pleased with it. We opened mm-hmm. up the barn um, so you could be in and out of the barn. And right. And out of the, but um, it, it's a really – and you have beautiful views. You have beautiful views of Mount Greylock. It really is a beautiful place. Yeah, yeah. When you're in the – because I have toured Arrowhead. Full disclosure, I've been there. Excellent. And when you look at where his writing desk is yeah. and you look out into the distance – um, and I could be getting this wrong, but is there some kind of folklore over the shape of the mountain and how it might look like the whale? Yes. Okay. Oh, so yeah, talk about folklore. that. Yeah. So he writes about it. Yeah. And, and other people write about it. Okay. All right. So it's when true. He, when he saw it okay. um, and when he looked at it, he was reminded often of the back of a whale. Right. All right. Good. Because yeah. I'm like, I know I yeah. got it from somewhere. Yeah. 
Probably from the tour. Yes, I mean it was. It's great. I mean, I I love history. Um, so I I've had an opportunity. This was pre-COVID to take one of the tours, um, and just see um these uh living dwellings. Now the thing is that these places are so small. Mm-hmm. When you look back, um, I I often think about like how tall were individuals back then? Um, not only in height but width, because I feel like people were just short they were. and small. They were. I mean, if you look at um, Civil War enlistment records for men who enlisted in the mm-hmm. Civil War, 5'4", five, 5'5", five, five, very unusual to get much taller than 5'8", five, 5'10". Five, wow. And be, people were shorter. I mean, yeah. people had, the, the nutrition was, you know, not as good. Right. Childhood diseases. Right. Um, you know, other factors. People were shorter. Yeah. I mean, it, when you see the beds, right? Yeah. And you see, you're like, oh, wow, this is, it really drives the point home that, you know, people obviously look different. I say that to say because the Berkshire County, you know, um, Historical Society owns about um, 6,000 objects related to the history of Berkshire County. And so you can expect to see, you know, fine and decorative arts, household Mm -hmm. and industrial artifacts, costumes and accessories. And so if you go on the website, you'll see some of the items that they have. They have like the wedding dress that belonged to Louise Crane, Mm -hmm. um, which was, again, small. Yeah. Little. Tiny. Tiny. Mm -hmm. Tiny. I I look at that and I'm astounded. Um, You have a toy cupboard that belonged to Herman Melville's youngest daughter, Frances Melville. And then there is a very large cider press, which has a connection to a founding father and a former U.S. president. So could you talk a little bit about that cider press? Yeah. So uh, the cider press was used to make a giant wheel of cheese. Okay. By supporters of President-elect Thomas Jefferson um, in 1801, in the the summer of 1801. And they did this to show their support as Federalists. Um, Now, he was running, he ran and defeated, against and defeated John Adams, Mm -hmm. who was the local, right? He was John Adams from Massachusetts, from Quincy, Massachusetts. So um, here's a group of Federalists supporting Jefferson, Mm -hmm. sending this giant wheel of cheese to Washington, D.C., um, it was presented in part by the then minister of the Baptist Church in Cheshire. And um, they sent a long note that you can read uh, online as part of the Jefferson Papers. And I, I wanted to read a little bit of that to you because sure. it, because it, it also um, is a little bit of a dig at Jefferson. So the cheese was produced by the personal labor of freeborn farmers with the voluntary and cheerful aid of their wives and daughters without the assistance of a single slave. Oh, oh. It was hmm. originally intended for an elective president of a free people mm-hmm. and with a principal view of casting a might into the even scale of federal democracy. Mm-hmm. We hope it will safely arrive at its destined place and that its quality will prove to be such as may not disappoint the wishes of those who made it. What an interesting note. Isn't it? What an interesting note. Isn't it? Was it was it important for them to bring out the point that no enslaved person had assisted in the aid of this cheese? I, I, I think it was. And, you know, no one no one that I know of has made this connection, but not too long before this happened, there was quite a bit of back and forth between members of this church and a former member of the church who had moved to New York State about whether or not he had in fact freed enslaved children mm-hmm. of a uh, husband and wife that he had already freed mm-hmm. and who remained behind in Massachusetts. Okay. 
And this Baptist church, I think, was championing the cause of emancipation. Right. And, of course, Thomas Jefferson owned enslaved people, continued right. to enslave people through his presence. We know, we know that part of the story. Right. So, um, so it was almost like, a, a, was it a dig? Or? It, it, I think it was, even though they supported him. Yeah. It's like, well, but do the right thing. Right. It, you know, In the most polite it. way. Right. Right, of course, because you know it 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 drove the message home. But obviously, I mean, I picked up on it. So yeah, I'm sure Thomas Jefferson was a you know very yeah. smart man. I'm sure he could pick up on the undertones. That's right. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. So if people want to like you know, in addition to just these artifacts, I mean, how can they learn more? Like, do they just visit the website? And they can visit the website. Yeah, um, you can. Uh, if you would like to become a member, you can come and and uh, do research in the archives. You can commission research in the archives. Mm-hmm. See if we've got something that's related to a question or a topic that you're interested in. Uh, we do lend artifacts to exhibits, and you know we we host a small exhibit during the season, uh, usually in the small barn. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've we've done other exhibits around the city. Um, so you know we we are trying to let people know what we have. Right. We were on the path of doing more school visits and actually taking sort of museum in a box, exhibits in a box right. kind of thing. We hope to get back to that as the protocols um, are such that we can do that. Mm-hmm. And that's really because schools are less able perhaps to right. provide transportation. But if we go to the schools, right. we can do sort of in-classroom visits, um, which is helpful, I think. You know, I, I have to, my, one of my personal um like favorite movies is Glory. I remember yeah. when Glory first came out. Yeah, I do too. And I am enthralled by the 54th Regiment. Mm-hmm. So much so that I had reached out to the Athenaeum and said, what, um, do you have like a record of people who are from the area who um, served in the Civil War? Do you have anything similar about the 54th Regiment? And explain who the 54th Regiment is for folks who may not know. Yeah, so the 54th Regiment, there were um, a number of regiments that were raised uh called USCT or U.S. Colored Troop Regiments during the Civil War. The first of these, and sort of the pioneer one of these, was the Massachusetts 54th. Uh, It's a very long story. It's told really well in in glory, and there are several books about it. But basically, it was, um, uh, it had to be brought forward by abolitionists to do this as a, a, a proof of concept that uh, black men could be effective soldiers, right. could, um, you know, learn how to do the things soldiers needed to do mm-hmm. and and would be, you know, acceptable as soldiers right. in, in the U.S. Army. And um, it, it, it involved a lot of uh, a sacrifice. It also involved a lot of communication and use of networks in the black community, not only in Massachusetts, but throughout. Right. Um, the Union states mm-hmm. to uh, enlist men into various regiments, right? And there were also men who enlisted in the Navy, right? So, it, and there were uh, there was a U.S. Fifth uh, Cavalry Heavy Cavalry Regiment, and then a spillover regiment in the Mass- in Massachusetts, the Fifty Fifth, Massachusetts Fifty Fifth. There's a Massachusetts Fifty Fifth. Yes, yes, there was. We never hear about them. I know you don't hear about the Fifth Cavalry either. No, um, but many men from the Berkshires and elsewhere served in those regiments as well. And so um, I'm I'm engaged in this long project to try and and put together more information about Black people in Berkshire County before 1865. And one of the things I've been trying to do is you know recapture mm-hmm. the men who actually enlisted in these additional regiments right. in these additional ways 
um, and participated as soldiers and sailors in the war. It's so interesting to me. I mean, I just love history. And when I looked at the documents that I received from the, the library um, and I looked at the basically just the list, I, it showed like their professions and it was yeah. like farmer, yeah. laborer, yeah. blacksmith. Mm-hmm. You know, these were not people that were like, these were regular people that said, I want to serve because this is important to me. Yeah. And some of these men had been enslaved, you know, were born into slavery, Mm -hmm. had been enslaved and either were self-emancipated, ran Mm -hmm. away, or were emancipated during the various stages of emancipation. Mm -hmm. Not all of them were born free. And so they were taking an even larger risk um, in many ways by enlisting. And the, the movie, I think, makes that point well. It does. You um, have a mixture of freeborn right. black men and right. enslaved black men, right. um, which is the way that it was. Right. Yeah. D- there is definitely a dichotomy, um, and I'm not giving any spoilers for for anyone who's never seen Glory. I mean, it's been out since 1990. It's been but, out a long time. Yeah. yeah. But... Um, but yeah, you could see like with like Thomas, who mm-hmm. was like from, you know, the character of Thomas was from Boston. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, then men who were from the South. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it just, you know, because obviously when they marched into the South, they saw different um, different troops. And you could see the difference between those who may have gone into it, who were maybe just coming out of slavery versus those who may have lived in existence um, outside of that institution. So it's a really great movie. um, But learning about actual individuals who actually served, I think, is tremendously powerful. Um, Is there anything at the Historical Society that one could look into to learn more? We don't have anything collected yet. I think that's one of the the, uh, things that we want to try to do is provide uh, more information. I I do want to do a call out uh, to the Samuel Harrison Society (laughs) and the work that they've done to preserve and interpret the life and contributions of Reverend Samuel Harrison. Powerful. He was a chaplain. He was a chaplain for the 54th yep. and, in fact, was one of the leaders of the movement for equal pay. Right. Which, if the movie ever got redone, which I don't think it needs to be, but if it ever did, I'd go back on that point. Yes. Because I think most people, again, have no understanding. None. That None. The, the pay was not equal. It took months and months and months. Right. It was finally done, but it took a lot of agitation. Right. Um, to get Lincoln, President Lincoln, to agree right. to equal pay yeah. for black soldiers. I mean, if you think about the time, I mean, how, I mean, it was just rife with just so many different challenges, right? Yeah, and to, right. to advocate and to speak up at that time, I mean, we, we look at it through our modern lens. But if you think about it at the time, anyone who spoke up was taking a chance. They were. And, you know, the Dred Scott decision and so the, the idea that you, that black people could be um, taken out of the free states mm-hmm. and sold into slavery, back into slavery, um, that, that this was a very dangerous time right. for men in particular, but for men and women. Right. Um, there was a migration to Canada, right. including individuals from Pittsfield and other parts of the Berkshires mm. who went into Canada during the 1850s to be safer. During those Dred Scott years prior to the Civil War, some of them back migrated back to the States. Some of them stayed in Canada. Yeah. Because they didn't feel safe. Yeah. Well, speaking about Pittsfield, um, in your research, I know you've done a ton of research about Pittsfield and, you know, you've uncovered um, some things that may not be well known. Um, Could you share a fact or two that our listeners would be surprised to learn about? 
So um, I, keeping with some of the themes that we've been then talking about, which is from my research, uh, I think it's important for people to know that Pittsfield was the center of a really longstanding black community um, starting in the 1760s when blacks made up about 3% of the overall population in the county. And that population, with very little exception, stayed, that percentage stayed in place until about 1860. Um, and between 1820 and 1840, so the U.S. Censuses of 1820, 1830, 1840, Berkshire County was second only to Suffolk County, which is where Boston is, mm-hmm. in terms of numbers of black people Wow! in the state. And I think most people assume that the other centers of black population were somewhere else, North Shore maybe. Yeah. Springfield. It was here. It was here. Um, in 1840, in fact, Pittsfield and Sheffield yeah. were among, were sixth and seventh in the number of black people of the, the top 10 towns and cities in Massachusetts in terms of black population. Wow. Sixth and seventh. Wow. There, there's so much history, and and I would encourage anyone. We're, we, we've run out of time. This, is, this always happens with the conversation is so good, but I encourage everyone. Cindy, if people want to learn more, where can they go? Uh, BerkshireHistory.org okay. is our address. Okay. Uh, Samuel Harrison Society has their own address, the Clinton oh. Church Restoration. Okay. Yeah. All right. Great resources. Okay. Everyone, you've been listening to Backstory. Let's hear it on WTBRFM with uh, Pittsville with Roberta McCulloch, who's up the mayor's office in the city of Pittsville. Thank you, Cindy. And thanks, Thank you. everyone. Have a great day. 